You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, Lord, thanks for your goodness and your loving kindness, and thank you for everyone who's here. I pray uh, particularly for students who are going through exams this week and the misery that is exams. pray that you would give them the, the peace of your, of your finished work uh, in their lives, and pray that you use this time to uh, sanctify us and draws closer to you. Ask the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is um, class number two on, uh, we're doing another marriage class. Um, it's funny, I, uh, I spoke at a marriage retreat at a church um, not too long ago, and that like everyone at that church, everyone at the marriage thing was on average at least 10 to 15 years older than I. And I'm kind of like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know? This is, uh, um, yeah, this is kind of amateur hour. Uh, and so I was just like, all, all I really have to offer is what the Bible says. And so I was just like, I'm just going to teach the Bible. So the same thing is true here. I don't really have, um, I, I'm just going to tell you what I know to be true from the Bible. And hopefully that'll help us and sanctify us in our marriages. There are a lot of people here who know a whole lot more about marriage than I do from a practical wisdom standpoint. Hey, and, um, and I encourage you to talk to them. <laughs> uh, but so to start out, what, the, what, where we're going today is we're going to talk about um, the biblical definition of love versus the world's definition of love and how important it is to have a true definition of love as it pertains to marriage. Now, keep in mind, we have, um, have this is kind of a joint class between high school kids and adults. So some of this is directed towards the high school kids. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's going to be relevant for all of us. But I want to start out uh, in, you know, looking at the biblical definition of love and start out looking kind of at the world's concept of love. And we're going to start with what better place than love actually? Um, how many people here have seen love actually? How many people here love love actually? How many people here hate love actually? How many people here love and hate love, actually? <laughs> that is me. Anyhow, so we're going to start out. This is the opening of the movie, and Hugh Grant starts out talking about how, you know, things really aren't so bad in the world. Really, if you look around, love is actually everywhere, right? So here we go. <coughs> Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion is starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. It seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. Mm. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Okay, so that's so that's kind of the opening to this movie. And, um, and so then this movie... And I really do like this movie. But there are some parts that drive me bonkers, and you'll see why in a second. Um, that um, I, This movie is about eight different vignettes, like little stories 
where you see love playing out in different ways. And uh, the, the problem here is that there's just this free form, make it up as you go definition of love. And so you're going to see an example. I know you have a situation where a husband's having an affair, like cheating on his wife, and that's a expression of love. And then you have two people who are involved in making a pornographic movie, and they fall in love. And it's just, and, and then there are some really sweet ones, like this widow who, um, this widower, and his wife has died, and he's inherited the stepson, and he like really has this sweet relationship with the stepson. And there's some really great ones in there too, but it's but it's this diversity, and you'll see why that's problematic here in a second. By the way, there's one little section here where there's so, some scantily clad people for like one second. I'm going to try to edit that. Oh, and you know what? It might just be that the Holy Spirit says this is not this is not to be because it's not showing. Right as I said that. Oh, here we go. Okay, try our hardest. Oh, I need to give you some context. Sorry. The uh, this is th- this is Kira Knightley, and she and her husband are sitting there, you know, watching TV. It's Christmas time. This is the husband's best friend, and Kira Knightley discovers that he is in love with her. Okay, he's in love with his best friend's wife. Okay, so this is the end of the movie, and just watch the scene. Okay, guys, we bonkers. Lying. Oh, sorry, that's the bad part. Okay, so let's just break that down. Let's break down the film here, okay? Yeah, like, you just smooched your husband's best friend. Husband's, husband's best friend. Like, the penalty is thrown. Like, that is out of bounds. But 
you know, but hey, in the moment, in the moment, you know, this is love, right? And so here's the thing to start out um, with the world conception of love. First off, the the and I don't, hey, I don't want to be like you know the I don't I don't, don't want to be like the, the angry hater here. I'm just going to speak here in descriptive terms. Uh, the world's definition of love first is that it's a feeling. It's an emotion. It's, 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 it's driven by how you feel. That's the first thing. The second thing is that love is about happiness and personal fulfillment. So if in a relationship, you know, I'm not happy, that means that love has ceased to occur because love is primarily about my personal fulfillment. And then last, um, love is on is is meant to be on my own terms. This is the world's conception. Love is on my terms, and so basically, not to get too controversial, but this is why you hear in politics today this dynamic of love and hate. Like if you agree with this, then you are a lover, and if you disagree with this, you're a hater. Uh, and that is because the world's concept of love is that love is I want to do things on my own terms. And the loving thing to do is to affirm or bless me doing whatever I want to do. And so that is why if you say, no, I don't think you should do that, or no, I don't think that's right, well, then you're a hater because love in the world's conception is me doing things, uh, like me getting to do things on my terms and you blessing and enabling that. Um, and so, so anyhow, uh, so with that being said, uh, flip that around, and we have the Bible's definition of love. The Bible's definition of love is almost completely antithetical to the world's conception of love. And so the the, the Bible's definition of love is uh, the devil's definition of love is best understood within the framework of a covenant. And so that's kind of the you know covenant of love is kind of the uh, one of the consistent themes you see from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God makes a covenant with His people, and that that covenant is what defines His love for His people. And so you know a good example of this is in the book of Hosea, um, the book of Hosea, which um, if you're not familiar with it, it's an Old Testament prophet. And uh, in Hosea, you have uh, Hosea who God tells go and marry Gomer. Gomer is a prostitute. Uh, he says, go and, go and marry Gomer and love her. All right, there's nothing appealing about Gomer. Um, she's not, not described as being attractive. She certainly doesn't seem to have terribly high character based on her line of work. Um, but God says to Hosea, Hosea, go marry Gomer. And so you see, um, it, uh, the Lord says uh, in Hosea chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So, you know, that this is meant to be, I think Hosea was a real person, and this was a real incident in history where a real person named Hosea did and was called to marry a real person named Gomer. Uh, but it also functions an, uh, analogically at the metaphorical lover where that's God. Like Israel wasn't necessarily beautiful. Israel wasn't necessarily wonderful. They didn't have necessarily high moral quality. God makes a decision. I, Abraham, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love Sarah and I'm going to love your people. And it's not based on merit. So with that being said, we see that in the Bible's definition of love, 
it is, there are four qualities that I would point out. First, love is a choice. Love is a choice. It's not based, I mean, certainly emotional happiness and joy flows out of love. We wouldn't deny that. Um, but love is first a decision. We see that God, God's love for us is first a decision on his behalf. Keep in mind, like Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. Had any of us been born when Jesus decided to die for our sins? None of us had been born. None of us had done anything good, bad, or indifferent that would, that would prompt Jesus dying for our sins. Jesus made a decision to die for your sins before you're even born, before you're doing anything. So God's love for you began as a decision by God to love you, irrespective of your performance. Second thing is that biblical love is not dependent upon merit. It is not dependent upon your moral quality, your religious performance, how attractive you are, how talented you are, how good a person you are. It, 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 it ignores that. How is God able to ignore that? Because Jesus lives the perfect life on our behalf. He dies on the cross for everything unattractive and all of our failures on the cross, and that is wiped away such that God sees us as righteous. So with that being said, God loves us on our worst day the same he does uh, on our best day. It's, it's all the same. It's, it's not dependent upon merit. Love is also self-sacrificing. Uh, it is costly. It, is, it involves service. If you have children, uh, you know that uh, you know, loving your children is exhausting. It's painful. Hey, kids, we love it. We do. We're grateful for it. It's the, it's the most life-giving thing you know, any person will ever experience, but it is tough. It is really tough. And that's, that's also true of marital love. I think a lot of times we have this idea that love and marriage is going to be as we see in, uh, in TV and in movies, that it's going to be you know, just wild romance and uh, candlelight dinners and all that kind of stuff. And that, that's true. That's there. And that's nice. And that's not necessarily the normal nine to five. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more difficult than that. And then finally, and this is important, real love, real biblical love is meant to be sanctifying for both the person who's being loved and the person who's doing the love for both parties. So let's look, let's go back to, uh, let's go back to Ephesians chapter five, where we started last week talking about marriage. I covered the wives submit to your husband's parts last week. You can listen to the audio. I don't want to get into that this week. <laughs> Paid my dues. No. Um, so we're starting in verse 22. Wives submit to your own husbands as, as to the Lord. Keep and see that parallel there between loving your husband in the same way that we love the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Now look at this. This is key. Husbands, love your wives, imperative command. So let's look at what that looks like. As Christ loved the church. Okay, so first, how did Christ love the church? He, he died for the church. He died for the church as a decision. He chose to do it. So first, it's a choice. It's a covenant. Second, and gave himself up for her. So this is service. How you know Jesus emptied his life for us. Jesus lives a perfect life for us. That is costly. He dies for us. Um, he is buried for us. 
So it is costly. There is there that is that was tough. That was painful. That's the nature of love. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So you see that part of Jesus' love for us is Jesus intends to purify us. He intends to make us more like Jesus. He's, he wants to see us transformed as people. That is, that is you know, the hope of his love for us, is that we'll be changed. Now, Jesus is perfect. He is God. So he doesn't need that to come back to him residual. Jesus doesn't need to grow in character. He's already God. He's already holy. But for human beings, you know, we always need to grow. Right? We're, there's, there's not a, not until the, you know, the day that we die will be the day that we stop needing to grow in terms of our character, our morality, um, the, and, and you know, the way that we relate to people, so on and so forth. So we see that what God is calling a husband to do, to love his wife in a way that will sanctify her, and that by loving his wife in that manner, it will sanctify him too. It will transform him too. And so this is a little bit cliche, uh, especially if you grew up in evangelical subculture, as I did, you heard this a lot, um, but it's true. God is far more interested in your holiness than your happiness. God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. Uh, and so here, th- what I mean by that is, yes, marriage is really a great thing. And it's, it is something that is life-giving and makes you happy, especially if you get to be married to Lauren Cole, as I do. <laughs> Winning those points. And at the same time, and at the same, <laughs> and at the same time, uh, like more primary in your marriage is God's cultivation of your character. God's seeing you grow as a person, grow uh, in the way that you love people, grow in your humility, grow in your recognition of your sin. And in marriage and uh, kids too, marriage in particular is such an incredible incubator for the cultivation of your character because when you sin like the the magnifying glass is so great you know if you're if you're uh, you know a jerk over text or you're a jerk on facebook you don't really see the consequence of that but if you're really selfish or you say something sarcastic or you lose your temper or you say something demeaning I mean, the collateral damage is right in front of you. And the collateral damage is going to be sleeping next to you in the bed if you're not on the couch, right? <laughs> so, so with that being said, you know, the nature of sanctification, the way it works in Christianity, is that we see our flaws. Like, we see our sins. That's, that's, the, that's the first part of being sanctified, is us seeing our need for change. And then, how are we changed? Not by trying real hard, not, not through, through behavior modification, we are changed by turning to Christ and and trusting him to change our heart, to change us from the inside out. So with that being said, when we talk about the second use of the law, which is you know, the law showing us our, our how we have fallen short, showing us our sin, as Paul talks about uh, in Romans chapter 3, uh, in a sense, your spouse is like the second use of the law. Your spouse is a mirror because you start to see just how not awesome you are in marriage. It's just true. 
You're, you know, I, I can remember. <laughs> oh, people have been married for a while. You're going to laugh so hard at this. Uh, I had been married for, I think, three weeks. And before I was married, this is not an exaggeration, I would go out and do something social every single night of the month, with the exception of one night. I made myself stay in one night. So that would be like going for a run with a friend, going out to dinner with some friends, going out to a bar, uh, going to play basketball, going to play golf. I mean, extrovert, social animal. So I'm driving home from work, and I'm on Highway 280, and we used to live kind of near the colonnade, and I call Lauren, and I'm totally in single mode. And I, without having cleared this, without any communication, I say, hey, Lauren, I'm going to go over to uh, Walker's house, my friend Walker Rineker, and we're going to, you know, we're going to go for a run, and I think we're going to go swim in the Little Cobb River, and yeah, so I'll, you know, I'll see you when we're done. <laughs> so there is this, you know, silence on the other side of the phone. There's a little bit of a quiver in the voice, and uh, and Lauren's like, what? I've cooked dinner for you, you know, and 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 I'm just like, hey, it's cool. I'll be home. I'll be home probably before around eight. <laughs> just so stupid, so stupid and so selfish. By the way, like young people or people who've been married for like a half a minute, uh, you when you get married, you got to communicate on everything you do. You know, you got you got to clear things. You don't make your own schedule. You make that in, you know, cooperatively. And so anyhow, it's just like I. Then it, then it was later that she had made this really nice, nice meal. Sorry that I'm sharing this. I should have cleared this with you. <laughs> um, she had made this really nice meal. I mean, and Lauren's a really good cook, gourmet cook, phenomenal meal. And here, I just like, hey, I'm going to hang out with my bros, you know? <laughs> going to frat it up. Anyhow, so, uh, so then I see the fallout from that. And it was just like, oh my goodness, I'm so selfish. <laughs> I'm so selfish. I, I, I can't just live life on my own terms. I can't just do what I want to do and, you know, let her pick up the scraps. Like, I, I have to communicate. And that, that was the beginning of starting to communicate about how time was spent. But I had to see how absurdly selfish I was. Uh, and that was hopefully the beginning of some sanctification in that area. Um, so with that being said... Uh, we're going to look at John chapter 13 as kind of a, as a final uh, example of biblical love, and this is probably you know in the Bible the best one of the best stories or narratives that shows us what love looks like. This is Jesus washing the feet of the disciple, the, the disciples. So we'll work through this starting uh, starting in verse 13. Now before the feast of the Passover. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So a couple of points to make first. We see that when it says, when John talks about the hour, this is a word that is used repeatedly throughout the, the gospel of John. Uh, you might remember the story, uh, John chapter two, uh, the wedding at Canaan, when Mary asked Jesus to do something miraculous to take care of the lack of wine. And Jesus says, mom, my hour has not yet come. What, Jesus, what, what John is referring to when he says hour is Jesus' death on the cross. So it says here 
that when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart. So Jesus knew this is right before Jesus is going to die on the cross. Uh, and n- notice um, this, notice the humility of Jesus in this. Jesus rises, he lays aside his outer garments, he takes on a towel. This is how a slave would dress in this context, uh, in Palestine at this day. It was common if you had a social gathering that there would be a slave there who, uh, who, would, uh, who would dress in this manner, and when people came into the supper, they would wash, the slave would wash their feet. So Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, is dressing himself as a slave, and he's doing the task of a slave in washing the feet of his disciples. This is, you know, the, the, probably the best example you're going to see in the Bible of what love looks like. That humility, doing something that's really nasty, that's dirty, uh, and he does that. And you, know, you hear stories of particularly older couples who are married for a long time, or anyone who uh, has had a spouse who's gone through cancer. I have a friend whose husband died from cancer, and he had colon cancer. And he had to have a major surgery where... Uh, a lot of his intestinal tract was removed. And so for a, a long time, every day, she was changing out the bag that collect, collected his, his poop. Uh, that, was, that, was, that was just part of how she loved her husband. That's not pretty. That's not sexy. Um, that is not going to make it onto uh, an ABC sitcom. But that is, uh, that is what biblical love looks like. There's going to be good news at the end of this, I promise. Um, So then Jesus poured into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. So look and see a couple of things in this section. Uh, one thing is that uh, whose feet are he washing? is he washing? Uh, in this situation, Peter. What is Peter going to do in the next scene of John? He's going to betray Jesus. He's going to turn his back on him. He's going to deny (laughs) Jesus. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this when he's washing his feet. Jesus knows this because he says to Peter, Peter, you're going to betray me. No, 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 not me, Jesus. I would never do that. No, 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 Peter. You're going to betray me three times. And he does. And so this speaks to the nature of Christian love, of God's love for us, it's not dependent upon your performance. It's not based on how good you are. In fact, it's it's knowing how bad you are. And God chooses to love you all the same. And so, particularly in marriage, we want to love everyone this way, but particularly in marriage, it's meant to be a concentrated human example of unmerited love to one another. Now, I'm speaking in terms of a normal marriage situation. I'm not talking about a situation where there's abuse, where there's adultery, uh, you know, where there's, there's gross sin in that way. I'm not talking about that. I'm not, I'm not saying 
that, hey, if you have a spouse who is beating you up, or if you have a spouse who is, you know, having an, an unrepentant affair or whatever it is, I'm not saying that you don't have biblical, you do have biblical grounds to exit a situation like that. But I'm saying in a normal marriage where it's just us being kind of selfish and us being, you know, kind of a jerk, that in that situation, like we love, we, we love in an unconditional <laughs> manner. Last thing here that I want to point out. Uh, oh, it's another thing we see again that Jesus is washing his feet for the sake that he would be purified. I mean, he's physically washing him, but this is meant to signify, you know, the the, the sanctification of Peter. Uh, but when we get to the end, it says, uh, when he had washed the feet and put his idle garments and resumed his place, he said to them, "Do you understand what I have done? Uh, what I have done? Ooh, sorry, what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am." If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Okay, so first he says, you know, a servant's not greater than his master. What he's saying is like, hey, if Jesus cleans us and serves us in such a demeaning way as he does with Peter and such a demeaning way as he does on the cross, then certainly we're not above Jesus. And like we're, we can love other people uh, in this manner. A second thing, uh, and the, the, here are the two last things, the two last things I want to get across. This is the big one. So students, if, if, if you've been blanking out and thinking about you know your Latin exam, zone in here. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The promise of this, the good news, is that Jesus says that loving people in the way that the Bible defines, in a manner that's a choice, in a manner that's uh, unconditional, in a manner that's self-sacrificing, in a manner that seeks to see the other person grow, that it is a life-giving thing. It is a life-giving thing. You will actually be blessed. This word blessed means that you will have this ultimate sense of satisfaction. It's kind of like the New Testament equivalent of the word shalom, which is this ultimate sense of well-being. So the promise is loving people in a self-sacrificing way actually is a satisfying thing that will give you a content heart. The world's world's definition of love that is self-focused and that is emotionally based and uh, that is on your own terms, it is not sustainable. Uh, and it ultimately leaves you lonely. Ultimately leaves you lonely and dissatisfied. (coughs) Being selfish is very dissatisfying. And so Jesus is saying that, honestly, the most satisfying life that you can find is a life uh, where you love in the way that Jesus loved. And the last thing, and here's the key thing you got to hear, is you will never be able to love other people like this unless you first allow Jesus to love you like this. You know, and when you, in the word, you see the way that Jesus loves us in his life on the cross. Um, when you see the affection that God has for you, that he, you know, he delights in you, that he knows you perfectly, that he adores you, that he cherishes you like a child. And it's all unconditional and it's all a gift. That is the beginning of you being able to love people like Jesus loves you. The more and more that you allow Jesus to love you through his grace, the more you will just naturally inside out, you will inside change to a person who 
has a greater propensity to love people like Jesus. That's not to say that we're ever going to figure it out. Uh, we're n- none of us are ever going to be love rock stars. Uh, keep, keep those expectations low. Um, but the hope is that we really can change. We really can be changed in ways, and the, the catalyst of that is being loved by Christ in a manner that is unconditional um, and totally gracious. So let me pray for us, and then we uh, I, we'll do some uh, questions. Uh, yeah, Jesus, thanks, thanks you do love us this way, and Lord, open our hearts that we would allow you to love us um, at our worst, uh, and and Lord, transform us into people who really do love well. That that would uh, that would transition into our marriages, uh, into our friendships, into our relationships with our parents, uh, and, and in all of our relationships. Trust with these things. I pray to you, Saint. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.